Hello, and welcome to Evaluand, the podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Lynnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. This week, we're chatting with Dr. Aisha Boyce about teaching evaluation, including supporting and mentoring students of color and supporting black and brown colleagues of color during this time. Aisha is an assistant professor of educational research methodology at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, as well as the co-director of the UNCG Office of Assessment, Evaluation, and Research Services. Her research focuses on attending to value stances and issues related to diversity, equity, inclusion, access, cultural responsiveness, and social justice within evaluation, as well as teaching, mentoring, and learning in evaluation. In addition to teaching and research, she is the co-PI on a recently funded $1 million NSF grant, congratulations, among many other grants current and past, and the co-chair of the AEA's Multi-Ethnic Issues and Evaluation TIG. She recently received the 2019 UNCG School of Education Distinguished Research Scholar Award and the 2019 AEA Marsha Gutentag Promising New Evaluator Award. Aisha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dana. Yeah, I'm so glad that you were able to make it. I wanted to start off talking about the article you wrote with Brian McGowan. Am I am I pronouncing that right, McGowan? That's correct, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I, um, I think back to my first year as I realized I was going to go into teaching evaluation, and then now I've taught my first year, and that article mm-hmm. was really helpful to me. It's been five years since... Uh, maybe not since it's been published, but at least five years since you basically went through the process that I went through last year. So yeah, I'm kind of curious, like, what are your thoughts on the article now? Now, five years later, five years more experience under your belt, teaching, mentoring, supporting students in evaluation. Yeah, I think, I think everything that we found still rings true. I mean, one of our biggest findings was really knowing who your audience is in the classroom. So In my department, I'm in the educational research methodology department, and really, in many ways, um, the introduction to evaluation course um, serves two purposes. The first is for our students who come in and who are going to be master's and PhD level students in evaluation, And but we also have a lot of students across the university, across our school of education who take the course, and so really, it needs to be a entryway for our students who are going to like go on and be scholars and, and evaluation practitioners. But it also needs to have enough in there for those. This may be the only evaluation course they ever take. And so I think um, one of the things I've really figured out, you know, these past five years, um, having taught it four times now, is really trying to balance that, making sure that the different audiences, that they get what they need. And um, Dr. McGowan, when he taught the course um, in his program, it was also for students who are going to be planning programs. So he had to make sure that he included that whole component. So that they would plan the programs and then also evaluate the programs that they were um, planning. And so, yeah, I think, you know, being at that point, being a novice teacher of evaluation, it was a really fun experience to go through that with him and to be systematically reflective about what matters and what doesn't matter and what type of things should we be attending to in our classes. And so I think I'm really pleased with the way the article came out. And I'm also really pleased that you found it useful. Yeah. I'm curious what, like, what is the one thing you want the students taking this one semester course to take away about evaluation? 
Okay, yeah. So, well, I think the one thing that I want everyone to take away from my courses is um, knowing a little bit about their assumptions. And if you're going to take a graduate level course in research or evaluation methodology, um, the thing that I want everyone to walk away is understanding that a lot of times we have conversations about methodology, so quantitative versus qualitative or different methods that we use, but it's important to me that everyone walks away understanding um, ontological and epistemological and axiological assumptions, which, you know, probably half the people who are listening to this have now went to sleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I do think that it's really important that we elevate our conversation about what counts as knowledge, whose knowledge matters. Those are the conversations that I think we need to be having. So I think starting there. And then the other thing I think, you know, students who take evaluation courses and really my introduction to research methodology course is that you need to come up with the question first, and then after the question, um, the methodology comes. Good. Yeah, I, I love the question first approach as well. I'm curious how you approach teaching axiology, ontology, epistemology, all of those ologies, um, <laughs> especially within one semester. I mean, one of the struggles I have is just like, there's just so much to cover, right? Um, so like, how do you cover that in a way that they get it? Yeah, I, I will say, I think it's it's pretty tough. I think you're spot on there. And I think that, you know, everyone might not like deeply, deeply get it. It's something that I just kind of want to lay the foundation. And as they continue going on, I mean, I've had students come back to me after they've taken two or three more semesters and say, oh my gosh, I totally get it. Like now what you're trying to say makes sense. And I'm okay with that. Um, the way that I teach it is, you know, the first semester I taught it, I tried to just like lecture about it and do a couple exercises and that did not work at all. Like they, it, it didn't work. So I found that I assigned groups and I have each group present about the different ologies and something about you having to teach it to someone else really makes a huge difference. And part of what they have to present is how their ology is related to the other ologies. So even though they don't, you know, if you're presenting ontology, which is the one that, you know, obviously goes first, you still have to understand how it relates to the rest. And so I found that that works really well. And then I just try to keep bringing it back up. So when I, by the time we get to logic models and by the time we get to evaluation questions, um, they should have all this kind of in the back of their minds. I really like that idea. I've been really working on trying to flip the classroom a lot more too of, you know, I'm not a fan of sitting in front, you know, mm -hmm. stage on the stage type model of teaching one bit. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I struggle a little bit with the students who are like, well, isn't that your role as a teacher? But I love that idea of, again, anything that is a struggle, maybe not a struggle, but something that they need to struggle through learning, having them, you know, put the onus on them to struggle on their end um, to come to understanding. And then you're there as the guide to help make sure mm -hmm. that they're on the right track with all that. I love that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So um, do you teach any other evaluation courses um, or is it just that intro course? No, I teach quite a few evaluation courses. I'm quite proud to say that at UNCG, we have uh, over seven evaluation specific courses. Yeah, oh, just wow. dedicated to evaluation. So I also teach culturally responsive approaches to research and evaluation. Um, I teach like the applied evaluation uh, course where they actually go out and do the evaluation. Um, and I have also taught advanced evaluation theory as well. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, I, yeah. I got two semesters. That's it <laughs> to get everything I need to get in. But like, yep. uh, that's so awesome, especially having it a culturally is. responsive, a theory specific course. I miss that. Yep. Yep. So what I, is yeah, it I, like? I, this... 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that the thing that I really love is that, and this is related to my work and my own values and the department's values, is that um, the culture responsive approaches to evaluation is required. So every master's student, every PhD student um, who go, is on the evaluation track is required to take that course. And is that a course that they have to take before they take the um, the applied evaluation course you were mentioning? No, they don't have to take it before the applied evaluation course. They just have to take it after the introduction to research methods and after the introduction to evaluation course. Okay, so beyond that, is there is there a sequence or is it kind of like as you can fit things in your schedule? It's as you can kind of fit things in. You kind of have to take like your core stats, your intro, a few intro courses, and then you can go in whatever direction based on when you enter and what's offered. Oh, that's very awesome. That's That sounds like a really cool program. And it's mostly yeah. doctoral students or a mixture of masters and doctorals? It's a mixture, a mixture of masters and doctoral students. Very awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, are there any, like, what's your favorite evaluation activity you like to teach to your students? Oh, man. I mean, my favorite activity is definitely the rating the evaluation cookie, um, where I, you know, of course, everything's store-bought. I don't anything myself. Um, but uh, I just think it's so fun. It's so like, you know, especially because, you know, we have students who come in who have been evaluators for years. We have students who come in who are just fresh off of, you know, graduating from their undergraduate degree. And so we have all different levels. And so it's so fun to watch them, um, you know, many of them engage with evaluation the first time, but for some to really think about it in a different sort of way and to really um, wrap their minds around criteria and wrap their minds around like what would be the metrics for a good cookie and some of the discussions are hilarious um, and so I think for, and it's also nostalgic so that was one of my first um, you know formal training and evaluation uh, activities that we did when I was at the University of Illinois and right. so you know it brings back great memories for me and I, I find that you know people remember it's a lasting it has a lasting impact. I, I almost wonder if there's any evaluator who's not familiar with that exercise. <laughs> when I asked right. uh, Jennifer on the previous episode uh, what her favorite exercise was, it was also the cookie exercise. And that's probably <laughs> one of my favorites as well. So much fun. Um, yeah. I, do you use any other activities from the, oh gosh, um, is it Preskill and, and Taurus? Uh, I think so. I, I know it's Preskill. That's horrible. But yeah, so I they... That resource, that book is a great resource. And so um, there's also one where it, um, te like, there's, like, differences between research and evaluation purposes that I like to use where they, like, complete a matrix. Um, and they have some good scenarios in there as well that I've pulled from as well. Nice. So are your students, so some of your students have a lot of evaluation experience, some don't. Um, are they coming mostly regional or do you get students international throughout the United States? Yeah, I would say half of our half of my evaluation students are literally regional to North Carolina or the Southeast, right. and the other half are international students. So we don't have as many students who are from um, across the United States. We kind of have cornered, you know, those two markets. And so, I mean, I love it if there were more students who were, um, from, you know, U.S. citizens from the United States, but those that's who we've got so far. Right. We're, we're in a similar boat. It's probably closer to 90% from Wisconsin or Minnesota um, and then 10% international. Um, but I wanted to start talking a little bit about supporting and mentoring graduate students, primarily those of color. Um, 
as a little bit of background on my program, we are a predominantly white institution, um, but we do have international students and we do have students from the area who are not white, um, you know, students of color. Um, and so I do want to talk about how we can better support all of our students, but primarily those, especially, I mean, I think your, your school is um, not a PWI, right? Correct. So that, that I think helps a little bit, at least institutionally, but what are some of your thoughts about supporting and mentoring students? Yeah, this is something that I've um, really started thinking about and um, have become passionate about and really in the past two years. Um, and so I actually have an article that's getting ready to be revised and resubmitted to the Canadian Journal of Program Evaluation. Um, there's going to be um, a special issue on evaluation, evaluator education um, led by Jill Srinard and John Lavelle. And so I you know, spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this and writing about this and reflecting on my own experiences um, as an Afro-Latino woman um, who lives in the academy. Um, and so I, I think that there's kind of like, especially when it comes to um, evaluators of color and graduate students of color, I think that there's kind of like five key things to think about. And so I'm just going to list them here and then we can talk about ones that maybe strike you or if there's ones um, that you want to ask questions about. Um, so the first, which is totally relevant right now. And, um, you know, I again, I started thinking about this article almost a year and a half ago. Um, but the first is consider the impact of vicarious trauma on um, graduate students of color. The second is to assist with the facilitation of peer um, mentors and peer squads, um, squads, no one can see that, but me doing air quotes, um, respect, honor, and celebrate students' culture, religion, and families, um, be vigilant of microaggressions and practice micro-validations and develop mentoring competence. And so those are kind of five things based on the higher education literature and based on my own experience that I really think are key um, when it comes to uh, supporting graduate students of colors. Of course, I want to say like, all graduate students of color are not the same. Um, there are other identities of oppression. There are other, other identities of um, uh, resilience and um, prosperity. And so, you know, this is uh, not meant to be like, it's a one size fits all, but these are, it's really meant to be like, these are some things that you should really consider that I would say that all graduate students of color need. And probably also um, students from the predominant population as well. Right. Yeah. No, I love each and every one of these. Maybe we could go through them a little bit in turn. Um, so the first one, you know, considering the effects of vicarious trauma, um, we're seeing more and more these days about uh, having a trauma informed uh, pedagogy, andragogy mm -hmm. approach to how we're teaching. Um, I'm wondering, do you have any, I I'm, I'm just starting getting into this idea mm -hmm. of trauma informed pedagogy. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what, what are the things that you're thinking about when you're considering this? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, I think people, especially now, have been saying, like, I don't know how to have these conversations. I don't know what to say to my students. And so I've I found that the best thing to do is to be honest about where you are, to be a little bit vulnerable, which can be uh, scary, especially when you're advising someone to say, I don't know, or, or I feel scared, I feel sad. Um, and to just be open to listening and, and to providing space for conversations, but not forcing it. And so I think for me, that is what I've been trying to do for my own students. I've been really open and honest about how I'm feeling. And, and I've been having uh, meetings, especially with my students of African descent, about how they're feeling and, and, and um, 
you know, I think ultimately it's, but it's, it's not just like privately having those conversations, it's publicly having those conversations and it's publicly being an advocate. And, you know, we could go down this road, but I really want to talk about um, supporting students. But I mean, I think there is a huge difference between someone who's an actor versus someone who's an ally versus someone who's an accomplice or a catalyst or an advocate. And so I think we just have to really be thoughtful and be reflective about how we can do that. And I mean, me sending my students a text message, and I've experienced this as well, after a meeting and saying, wow, I can't believe someone said that to you, or wow, that was really racist, or that was really whatever. It's, um, it's like you have to stand up in the moment, and you have to be explicit, and it has to be um, practiced often. Yeah, that uh, that point about being vulnerable to get into that space, I think, is also a really mm-hmm. um, key point. Um, you know, it's better to act in some cases, better to act and do something and put yourself out there, even if you're going to get, you know, Definitely. hurt by that, than to not do anything at all, right? I completely agree. I completely agree. I, I love the second point you made as well about facilitating with peer mentors and squads. Um, I hadn't really thought about, like, again, super new to thinking about a lot of this, the, these things, but I hadn't thought about, like, the peer groups that I create or, you know, if I do a group activity, for instance, if I do a group activity or, um, you know, I'm putting evaluation teams together or uh, we're just in class and or they're outside of class and I'm not there, you know, um, how they're navigating the space together without me and how that also needs to like I do have a role in that in some cases to assist with that yeah definitely I mean I think um you know whenever someone emails me and it says that they're interested in in applying to the program I'm always like it's great it's wonderful I'm great I'm wonderful but you should also talk to my students because they're going to be the ones who tell you the truth about the things they love about me the things that they find annoying Um, there are lots of things that I don't know how to navigate. You know, I couldn't tell you exactly how much your paycheck is after taxes, you know, for your assistantship. And so I've just found that, especially when students are, um, have an identity that can also, that can sometimes be isolated, that they want to see other people like themselves, that they want to be able to talk to others who are similar to them. And I mean, that doesn't just have to be based on ethnicity. It can be lots of other different um, identities. But I found that, you know, um, if I have a student, I have a few students who are from Nigeria and all Nigerians are not the same. I definitely know that my husband's Nigerian, but they have similar experiences. They have similar lived experiences. They have similar language. And so bringing them um, together and connecting them, especially like the transition to the United States has made such a huge difference for them. There's just some things that I'm not going to be able to do And so I think it's important that they have that peer support so that they can have someone to talk to when I'm not available or when, or when they, you know, maybe it's something that I've done that is frustrating. And so I think that has been really huge. And I think that's really important. So how are you bringing them together? Is this like connecting them via email, just saying like, Hey, you might, you might enjoy this other person who's also from, you know, the same culture or has some other similarity with somebody. Do you, do you try to do that with all your students or, um, Mm -hmm. And then also, how are you, like, are you purposely putting them together in group activities or are you focusing more on diverse teams? So in class, I focus more on diverse teams. Now, I do have um, a STEM program evaluation lab where I support, I want to say, eight or nine graduate students and five undergraduate students. And um, those um, students and individuals get lumped together Um, based on what projects they're on and based on their interests and everything like that. And so 
um, in terms of like facilitating these these peer mentoring squads, like that's when they first come in. Here's someone who has a similar interest as you, or here's someone who is also from Raleigh, or here's someone who knows a lot about X. Um, here's someone who just also had a baby, like those those sorts of things. Cool, thank you. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you want to go over any of the other three. I think they're all really helpful as well. Um, you know, uh, I, I would I would just like to mention about microaggressions and microvalidations. I think most people know what microaggressions are. So I, I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I do want to say that, you know, microaggressions are, they're not about like what the person said, who said it, it's about how it's interpreted. And so I think, you know, us just being aware of the, I mean, everyone, um, you know, is is guilty of this, including myself, right? So I think like being aware of that and committing like Ibram Kendi, who's like my favorite, like non-evaluator artist, uh, author, it's like, saying that I'm going to be anti-racist, not saying I'm not racist, I'm not racist, saying I'm going to take an anti-racist stance and here's what I'm going to do and acknowledging that I sometimes have racist thoughts or I sometimes do things that would be considered racist. And instead of like being, you know, super worried about that thing, yeah, okay, you know what, like how can I move forward? And so I think that's the same thing with microaggressions, like really reflecting on why did I say that or, or why did I make that assumption about this student, about what they know or they don't know or they look or their hair or their dress or any of these sorts of things. Um, but one newer one, um, new literature that I've been kind of really looking into is microvalidations. And so if microaggressions are like death by like a million little cuts, then microvalidation is being um, lots of little validations to kind of um, honor and, and really speak into existence the person who the student thinks they can be. So as an advisor saying that. So that can be something, and to me, I, I often have to remind myself to do this, right? And so like, that's something like saying to a student, wow, you did really good in that presentation. The way you engage the stakeholders, the way that you answer the questions was really well done. And it's just what I thought you would do, but I was really, really impressed. And so making sure that I say all of those sorts of things to my students, making sure that I lift them up. Um, I'm a huge, like, you know, praise in public and then also praise in private, but also, you know, if there's things that they need to work on, you know, also tell them the things that they're doing. Because, I mean, I believe that every graduate student can do well. Um, the quote I have at the beginning of my paper is all graduate students can fly. Some just need a longer runway. And I absolutely believe that. I don't believe that you have to be like the smartest person to finish graduate school. I think you have to be dedicated. I think you have to be organized. And I think you have to have the support you need. And so sometimes if one of those three things are missing, then, you know, we'll say, oh, like this student, like they just, they're never going to get it. They're not smart enough. I, I just, I don't, that's my own philosophical belief. I just don't believe it has to do with how smart you are. I think it has to do with those other things. Right. And, and the role that we have in helping facilitate their learning and their growth and, you know, they're flying um, off the runway, you know, we can, we can give them the wheels to get off the runway a little quicker or something like that. Right. Um, exactly. yeah, I like that. And especially like focusing those examples on the exact thing that they did, as opposed to great job. You're so smart. Right. You know, that mm -hmm. kind of growth mindset type thing. Exactly. Almost. That's awesome. Micro validations. That's awesome. I'll keep, I'll keep a lookout on those. Yeah. So um, pivoting a little bit, um, another thing that you mentioned talking about is um, how we can support our black and brown colleagues of color during this time. Um, well, I'll, I'll let you start off. I, I shouldn't try okay, to speak right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I, this is, again, I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for anyone else. I'm speaking for what I have found to be most comforting and most useful, um, you know, so I, 
um, again, I think it goes back to these like public affirmations and public and explicit, like, you know, here's where I'm at, here's what I'm doing. Um, I think the, the emails that have really stuck out to me, um, and I'll just shout out Rebecca Teasdale at University of uh, Illinois, Chicago, she um, sent me this email and I mean, it literally almost made me cry because she was just like, okay, well, I just want to acknowledge everything that's going on and see how you're doing, which is like where usually like the rest of the emails stop, right? Like, okay, how are you doing? How's it going? But she said, and I recognize that, you know, this is, these are not her exact words. This is my interpretation, but I recognize that this whole process is going to be a marathon and not a sprint. And so I want to think about how I can support you long-term. And then she gave like different examples. One, maybe I could come to a class to lessen your burden of teaching. Um, two, maybe if you need help, um, you know, with some reporting thing, I can step in to, to, that, to do that. Three, I'm happy to like meet with your students one week while you're, you know, if you need a break or something like that. And so I think um, kind of these like specific like SMART goals, if you will, um, when you're approaching um, your colleagues of, of color, especially those who are black and brown, and saying, okay, like I know that I don't 100% understand how you're doing, but I want to, and I'm I'm doing my own self work. But in that, I also want to acknowledge you. And so I think to me that that's what's really important is is just being really public about it. I think silence, um, you know, is goes along with the oppressor. And I think I have personally seen a lot of people who have said a lot about you know culture responsive methods and social justice, and they've talked in their work about it. They've talked on Twitter about it. They've talked about it, AI, AA, and I see them as, and they're silent. And I mean, honestly, I see it and I find that it's disappointing to me that they haven't said something, whether it's sharing a post, whether it's saying, here's how I'm feeling. And I, I know that there's lots of different opinions about the right way to do this, but to me, the most important thing is that you're actually publicly saying you're doing it because when others see that you're doing this work and others see that you're making an effort, to me, that's inspirational. And to me, that's what's different about kind of our current um, situation. I mean, I've marched in Black Lives Matter, you know, rallies like seven years ago when I was a graduate student. So this is like not a new thing, but I just, for me, it's like, okay, welcome to the party. So, you know, now we all kind of are seeing all these horrible things going on, but, and how can we move forward and how can we um, support each other? Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I'm really taken aback with Rebecca's email that you, you mentioned. Um, one, Rebecca's awesome. Like, I, I mean, I love her dearly. I barely know her, but from what I know of her, she's like so incredible. Um, and what a lesson, like, I mean, I'm taking a lesson right here because I've been kind of struggling with, you know, I, I mean, again, I'm at a predominantly white institution. Um, we already know the, the, awful rates of, um, you know, how many black and indigenous and people of color there are in academia in general. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I needed to email a black colleague about something completely unrelated. Um, but I was just at a complete loss about like how to, cause I also don't know her very well. Right. And I don't mm -hmm. want to be putting any emotional labor on her about how to approach her in a way to say, like, I see you, I see what is going on in the world. And um, I'm trying to be here for that. Cause that, I think that's the best I can say right now um, without sounding cheesy, you know, like, or sounding inauthentic. So um, I mean, unfortunately I just kind of glossed over it and I just went straight to the point of the email. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's a really good lesson of like how, and again, I don't think I should have said that to her because I'm not close mm -hmm. enough with her, right? Yeah. But um, really good lessons about um, 
how we can approach those emails at least. Um, and then, you know, the silence is complicity, right? Um, yes, I am seeing the people who are silent. Um, I don't know if you've been seeing what's going on on eval talk at all. Are you on eval talk? I like get the emails, but I have said I'm going to not engage with that until I'm uh, tenured because I have lots of thoughts about conversations on there. But I'm like, I'm also like, I don't know who reviews my tenure packet. So I, I am like lightly, I mean, I probably read like one of every three updates that I get. Right. Yeah. So I, I guess I would also say like, in like this goes back to an earlier conversation we had in the, in the podcast, but um, you know, sometimes it is better to act, but then and I'm coming off of a particular thing that I did that I was kind of called out upon, uh, rightly so. Um, but also making sure that when we do act and when we do speak, that we're not being harmful in what we say and do, right? Um, so I'm trying to now balance um, what I say, my actions and my messages and my public stances and stuff in a way that I know is being uh, ho- helpful as opposed to harmful for the you know, what's going on in the world right now. Um, so I, I think that's a burden for me, right? That I need to take on that responsibility of making sure that I'm not, you know, being harmful in the actions. I'm not being inauthentic when I say, oh, I should, you know, I do culturally responsive evaluation approaches, um, like showing that by my actions as opposed to saying it with my words. Yeah, I, I think I might disagree with others, but I mean, I think it's about both. I think, You know, I think it's great that some people have like, you know, went and bought these books and they're like doing their own self work. But my sense is if you're doing it in private and you're not telling anyone, then no one else knows that you're doing it and no one else knows the struggle you're going to. And then others who are struggling don't feel as empowered to stand up and say something. They don't feel as comfortable, you know, being honest about where they are and honest about their stumblings. I think, you know, the point is not to, you know, you know, beat somebody up for where they are or where they aren't. But the fact that you are not that like, oh, I'm trying is enough, right? But the fact that like, I I just think it's important to say where you are. I think it's important to be explicit just because you just never know. And I find really the, the, my friends who I'm most proud of are the people who have um, said something on their Facebook wall, on their Twitter wall, and then have totally been attacked by their other friends who are similar to them. And like, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. And then when they stand their ground and say, well, actually it does. Here's some, here's some reasons why. Like to me, especially like even for you, like you're going to be, you're in a space that like others are not in, in a space. So like my hope would be that, you know, when you go back to, um, okay, no one can see me. When you go back, if I'm going to do air quotes, if you go There's back, air quotes there, yep. <laughs> air quotes there um, is that you do begin these conversations in these spaces where there are no, um, maybe there aren't, there aren't as many minorities. I think, you know, if there is one in the classroom, I mean, that may be uncomfortable, but I think part of it is, is we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. I think the reason why people are so uncomfortable about talking about race is because no one talks about race, right? right. We use terms like, equity, diversity, and inclusion when we really mean white supremacy and anti-racism and and those sorts of things. And, you know, EDI has a place in our work and has a place in our personal lives, but I think we have to just get more comfortable talking about it. Otherwise, we won't be more comfortable talking about it. I mean, I think it's the same thing when it comes to like all of these other really important issues around social justice, whether it's with the LGBTQIA plus community, whether it's around um, religious freedom for other communities. I think if we don't talk about it and we just shove it underneath 
the, the table, like, oh yeah, diversity, we have lots of different people, then how is that helping the people who, who need it the most? And so this is even a lesson that I've had to learn with my own identities as being a heterosexual person, as being someone who is Christian, right? But like, I feel like there should be space for everyone. And so I think that's also been really important for me to reflect on and me to remember. Um, so, you know, this isn't just relevant to, you know, the the current uprising around racial injustice. Certainly, I think race plays a huge role in this country and it's in many ways interwoven into like the very fabric of our nation and interwoven into many of our other uh, issues. But um, certainly there is a place, I believe, for everyone. And so it's like you have to make that statement publicly or people don't know that you feel that way. Very true. Yeah. And the people who need to hear that aren't going to hear it, right? Exactly. And the people who should be hearing it are going to assume that you have the same thoughts and feelings they do, which is not necessarily accurate or just, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thinking the larger academia, right? We've been focusing a lot more about our internal our internal um, networks and spaces that we're in, but we're also, you know... Um, part of a larger institution, each of us. And I'm kind of wondering, what are your thoughts about how we can approach, you know, our campus presidents or chancellors or what, I don't know what yours is called. Um, ours is mm-hmm. chancellor um, or the um, different, you know, our dean or something. I don't know, like, like who should we be reaching out to and what should we be doing kind of thinking that larger sphere of influence that we have? Yeah. So, um, I'll say uh, within my own institution, within my own department, I've begun to have uh, conversations with my department chair. Uh, that's where I've started. And, and um, the students of African descent are getting ready to submit a letter um, along with myself and my other colleagues who are of African descent to our department chair um, with some things that we would like to see. And it's our hope that um, because of this momentum that we can um, kind of request that there be some action around these and other uh, important social justice issues. Um, I think that oftentimes as methodologists, specifically, you know, we, some people like try to be value neutral, try to say, well, that's, that's not what I'm interested in studying. And that's a whole nother conversation about value neutrality. But what I'll say is if that's where you stand, that's fine. But like, we're also mentors and advisors. And so ultimately we have to be thoughtful about the fact that our students, we're not like teaching our students in a vacuum, like there are all these things that are happening in their lives that are really important and that we should attend to. And so, I mean, to me, it's, you know, uh, maybe you could just send an email directly to your chancellor. Like that's probably not the the approach that I'm going to take. I don't know my chancellor that well. Um, And so, you know, starting with my department chair, who I have a great relationship, who does really great work. And I think overall thinks well about these issues. But I think he, frankly, needs a little bit of a push to do something. And so that's what I'm hoping this letter is going to be. And my desire is that um, this letter is going to be public. So, you know, look out for it on Twitter or or somewhere else later. Um, But then my hope is that he'll elevate it and he'll share it with the dean, right? Like, um, and not that you can't go directly to your dean and you can't go directly to these certain people. But, I mean, there are very formal avenues in place for grievances or for concerns or for these sorts of things. And so my direct supervisor is my chair, my head. And so I'll be talking to him and I hope that he talks to his direct supervisor. And I hope, I hope that it's kind of like this uh, bottom up approach. And I mean, these, these conversations are happening across universities, across institutions, and everyone has to go about the way in which they believe it will make the most impact. 
I think part of it is leveraging kind of these professional um, and personal relationships that you have with, with folks um, when it comes right. to thinking about these issues or, and bringing up things that um, need to be heard. Because sometimes there's just some people who won't want to listen to you because of your rank or because they don't know you or because whatever your department you're from. Um, and so it's, I think it's important that, you know, if you know someone who is in this position, or if you know someone who is in a provost office or who is, you know, we have lots of like, you know, chancellor's fellow for the diversity and, and, you know, different units fellow and, you know, adjunct for diversity. Like those are people who we should also be, you know, reaching out to and tapping as well so that they can feel supported to do what it is that they're supposed to be doing as well. Well, thank you. That's really helpful. Um, and, and, you know, thank you for sharing that, especially when you said how, um, nervous, I'm not sure the word I want to use there or what you would want to call it, but of, um, speaking out without tenure. Right. Um, I obviously mm-hmm. feel the same way about you. Um, you know, I've just finished up my first year and I'm still very probation, probationary, right. <laughs> Got one more year on my contract and who knows if mm-hmm. it'll get renewed again, especially with everything budgetary going on. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I thank you for sharing that courage and vulnerability with us. Yeah. And I think, you know, <laughs> he'll probably be mad at me for saying this, but my chair always tries to point out to me that, you know, if your record is strong enough, then it doesn't really matter what you say. I mean, okay, like you can't like say some things and you, you know, but like right. generally if someone doesn't like you, it should be okay. And I always have conversations with him like, that's just not true. Like I've seen so many situations where that's not true. Maybe it's not true for someone who's like the most stellar of, um, not that that's me, but like if someone's like a slam dunk case, but certainly if someone's on the line, um, or if they're kind of just there, I mean, there are conversations, we are all human and, you know, metrics or no metrics or criterion or criteria. I mean, also, you know, it still goes through the filter, which is us, the human person who's interpreting and, and weighing, you know, placing value. And so, so yeah, so I do think about that all the time. I, when I first started at UNCG, I worried a lot about being considered like the angry black woman, air quotes again, which no one can see. Um, and I worried about being the person who always spoke up. Um, you know, when I kind of start off my article that I mentioned about with the mentoring students of color, talking about when um, Kevin Lamont uh, Scott was fatally shot in, well, murdered in Charlotte. And, um, you know, I had students in my office crying. And I think one thing that I was not prepared for was like, the fact that, you know, being a mentor also means you're like a counselor, but like, you know, as with graduate students, you have people who have births, you have people who have death, you have people who have miscarriages, people who have babies, people who um, are married, people who are divorced. And, you know, I, that's not something I was prepared for. And so I think for, I'm working to get more professional development in that area myself, which is not directly related to what we're talking about. But I also want to emphasize that to anyone who is an advisor or who isn't in that role, like, get professional development. Like we don't know everything and that's okay. It doesn't matter what your rank is, like get professional development. There are people who spend their whole careers thinking about these and training others in these topics. Right. And and it's, it's not always enough to be able to just direct them to the counseling center, right? Like mm-hmm. not that they're not a valuable resource. They definitely are, definitely. but sometimes in the moment you need to be able to handle a situation. And, um, I sometimes I feel like my students, well, I mean, one, I think the fact that we're women, we take on those emotional burdens Mm -hmm. just a little bit more Mm -hmm. for our students because we're more willing to be vulnerable and share our emotions. So then they're more willing to do that with us. 
Um, but also like I'm in the psychology department and I know my (laughs) students know me well enough to know that I don't do counseling. I don't do clinical psychology, but you know, my interest psych students might not get that message when I like try to hammer that in. Like I, I'm not trained in this whatsoever. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I have colleagues that are around me that are who, um, you know, who know how to do this stuff and who could provide that professional development training, um, or at least be helpful in the moment if something were to arise that mm-hmm. needed some guidance and support. That's right. Well, um, maybe we can go ahead and start wrapping up and unless there's anything else you want to speak out about. Oh, uh, no. Well, one thing I like to do to end the podcast, this is something, um, I've uh, adopted from, um, Oh gosh, and the name just blinked. Um, NPR's um, Code Switch uh, uh, podcast. I don't know if you listen to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of some of the episodes, they they like to share what songs are giving them life. Um, and so I would like to end my podcast episodes with what's something in evaluation that's giving you life right now? What what gets you excited or joyful or whatever emotion that gives you life? Yes. So um, the thing that's giving me the most life right now, hot off the press, is that um, there is a, um, I'm working with John Lavelle, um, Leah Neubauer, uh, Tom Archibald, and we um, are putting together an NDE, New Directions for Evaluation on Evaluator Education. And the tentative title is the 21st Century Evaluator, Critically Defined and Responsive Education and Training. And uh, we just put out the call for proposals. And so that is giving me so much life. It brings me so much joy. All three of them are really um, amazing people professionally, but I've also now getting to know them personally. Um, and, uh, you know, you learn a lot about people when you have a million meetings planning a call, and I'm sure we'll have lots more meetings as the abstracts come in. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm excited to work with them. I have dubbed us the dream team, and I'm just super excited to work with them. So I think that is literally what's giving me so much life right now. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the Twitter post did come out earlier today. And now I realize what the dream team reference, the tweet like from a couple months ago is <laughs> all <right>. about. <laughs> that that's is right. so awesome. Yeah, I'm excited. I have an idea for something that Yay. I'll be submitting. Um, but I'm really like, regardless of if, if it's, you know, rejected or not, like, uh, super excited to have this NDE volume come out. So thank you for to you and the other three for putting it all together. Yeah. So um, what's next for you? I mean, you've got this NDE, you've got an R&R right now. I mean, you've got a million things that looks like you've got yeah. on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty busy. So I am going up for tenure this year. So my material for external review just went out. So that's uh, really scary, but also really exciting. I've been really trying to think about what would I do differently if I had tenure and I'm trying to live in that. And so that's part of this letter is like, okay, if I wasn't scared that someone would read it. And not that it's going to be inflammatory, but if I wasn't scared about like, oh, someone might read this and think she's, this is not her role, would I do this? And I was like, yes. So I'm like, yes, I am going to do this. I'm going to add my name to this letter. Um, so that's giving me so much life. That is so exciting. Um, in my personal life, my son turns two on Sunday. Aww. So that's super exciting. Um, for anyone out there who's listening, there's many different ways to have a family. But I think I think the most important thing I want to say is that it is possible to be exceptional and possible to, um, you know, be in academia or have a job and still have work-life balance. That was like, and I have a um, unhealthy relationship with my email. I'm getting better at that, not <laughs> responding to email. 
Uh, my students took bets about how long it would be after I had my baby until when I responded to the email. And it was about eight hours just because you're oh, sitting in the hospital and there's nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. And so that's, yeah. But, um, but seriously, I think it's possible to do that. It's possible to be married or to be, have a partnership or to have children or to have a great relationship with your family or to have friendships. All of those things are possible. And I think going into academia, I thought, oh my gosh, like, I'm going to like, I'm never going to have time for anything. And then when I had a baby, I was like, how am I ever going to get tenure? And now I feel really good about it. I feel fine about tenure. I feel fine about the work I'm doing. I am definitely way overcommitted. I'm learning to say no to things. But I think it's important that people know you can, as long as you have boundaries, it's okay. You can take care of yourself spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, and still have a great career. And so I think it's not like I have it all. It's not perfect. Sometimes I wish I had more time with my son or more time with my husband, but Overall, I'm really, really happy. And so I think I think others can have that, too. So I thank think that's, that's kind of what's next. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you for sharing that. That makes me like I needed to hear that. Um, yeah. My husband and I would love to start a family soon. And we've Yay. been putting it off and putting it off because grad school and then new job. And it just yep. never felt like the quote unquote right time. Right. And mm -hmm. I just we've decided we're just going to make the right time. It's just it's going to happen when it happens. And that's right. we're going to make the best, the best of it. Yeah, well, I support you in that. That's really awesome, and you know, I, it's it's doable. And there is no there is no right time, as everyone keeps saying, which is such a cliche, but it's true. Like we're like, are we going to have another one? It's a, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like how are we? And then we're just like, yeah, I guess we'll just we'll just see. Nice. I like that mentality. Yeah. <laughs> so, if anybody wants to get in contact with you, Ayesha, how can they best find you? Sure. Well, I'm on Twitter. Uh, that's a great place. Is at Aisha Boyce. So A Y E S H A B O Y C E. Um, I'm also at you know UNC Greensboro. So my first name dot my last name at uncg.edu. Those are probably the the best ways to get a hold of me. Perfect. Yeah. For everybody listening, get on Twitter. <laughs> we have wonderful right. conversations. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is a fun and insightful conversation. Yeah, we meandered a bit, but I hope uh, someone finds it useful and someone gets what they need from it. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm, where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland. Land.